Mission Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. George was just a little boy when he risked his life to save his brother Harry. His brother was in peril. Little Harry was in danger of drowning. And George dared to die for his brother. Why? In order to save Harry's life. So in that instant, the instant of his brother's need, George thought nothing of himself. What was his focus? Only his brother's rescue. There's an image of Jesus there. An image that's presented in Scripture. And I want to share three Scriptures that present this image of Jesus Christ to us. The first is from Paul's letter to the Romans. It's chapter 5, two verses, six through eight, three verses. It says this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this, from 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then the third, from John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 13, the words of Jesus that say this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. All three of these passages speak of dying for another. The first two portray Jesus. They speak of Jesus Christ and how he gave his life for every single one of us. While we were still sinners, Jesus gave his life. He died for us. In the third verse, those were the words of Jesus. He said them. He said, greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. And what do all three of these passages have in common? There's a common thread here. And the first is apostles. The first two, it was the apostle Paul, the apostle John, and then Jesus himself, Jesus' words, three different writings. But what do they have in common? They're all subtly different, but they have a common thread. And what's the common thread? It's love. Love. Love's in all three of them. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then Jesus, his own words, greater love is no one than this, to lay down his life. So love is the example. Love is the example of Jesus. Such love that offers its very own life. What does it accomplish? Why did Jesus offer his life? What, what was the need? I, I think that this is encapsulated very aptly and succinctly by the Apostle Paul, the great New Testament writer, when he was writing to his young protege, a young man named Timothy. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul just really succinctly put this idea of love and giving of the life and it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Paul wrote, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So Paul brings it right down to the purpose, the brass tacks. The love of Jesus Christ was shown when he came into this world with this purpose. He came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul added this little note, a little aside, of whom I am the worst. What was his attitude? His attitude wasn't, well, I'm better than somebody, or, or I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. No, his attitude was, I was the worst. I needed help. I was the worst of sinners, and yet Jesus poured out his love on me abundantly, and, and he came into this world to save, to save sinners, to save me, Paul says, and I'm the worst. And his love endures to rescue all. To rescue all, because we're all in need. And how is it that Jesus would accomplish such a great rescue? Well, he offered his life. Selfless, limitless love. And his model of love is what we are follow, his followers are to put into practice love. And what manner of love? This image of brother for brother love that's depicted in the story of It's a Wonderful Life, we can easily understand that. We can easily understand that. Brothers that are connected by the bond of blood, they're not mere friends. I mean, they share the same parents. They share the same mother and father. And they have each other's backs. So when one was in trouble, the other was there. And that's the way it should be for brothers. I, I remember the story I learned of my own father. My dad, he really didn't talk much of his younger years. He didn't talk much of his war years. I didn't really know a lot of his history as a youth or a young man until after he died. And I remember after he died, my Uncle Frank told me a story. Now, my Uncle Frank was bigger than my dad. 
He was four years older, next in line from my dad. My dad had a younger brother, he had an older brother, and then an older sister. But Frank was four years older, a bigger man. My dad was uh, not a large guy at all. I think on his discharge paper from uh, World War II, they had him at 129 pounds. He was, I was the tallest in my family. He was five inches shorter than me, thereabouts. But from what I learned from my Uncle Frank after my dad died, is that he had his back. And he told me this story. He said, one day, when I was about 16 or 17 years old, a kid from the neighborhood showed up at our house. They lived on a street called uh, McKinsley, I think, or McKintry in Detroit, uh, a little bit just west of downtown. And my Uncle Frank said this kid shows up because I owed him money. And my Uncle Frank, he was kind of a character. And so it really didn't surprise me hearing that from him. But he said, this kid said, hey, you know, you need to pay me. Well, my Uncle Frank didn't have the money. And anyway, he says, well, this, this kid took a swing at me. And now we're both 16, 17 years old. But he said, in an instant, I saw this flash. And that's all it was. It was a flash. He said, over the railing comes your dad. Now, he's only like 12 years old, but he said he came over the railing of the porch and he wrapped both arms around that kid's neck and he took him down. And he said, I had to peel your dad off of that kid. Four years younger, smaller, but yet he had his brother's back. And I thought, wow, what a story. Brother for brother. You know, that, there's the love of a brother. Now we can understand that, right? We can understand how one brother would not even think of himself. He would just sacrifice for his own brother. That unflinching, instant, selfless response out of love. And we see this love in Jesus, and yet even more so. I mean, we can understand this, this earthly depiction, but because Jesus loved even those who despised him as if they were his very own brother. It's a love that's beyond. But he loved a guy like Paul who violently persecuted the church. And why? Because he was here to save. And that's why Paul could write this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners because Paul had experienced it. Christ came in the world to save, to rescue, to liberate, not just a select few, not some who may seemingly deserve to be loved more than others, but all, all. Christ came in the world to save sinners and all have sinned. Jesus sees everyone. As George Bailey saw his own little brother on the brink of drowning in icy cold water, 
Jesus came into the world to accomplish that because he loved his creation. Jesus came into the world, the apostle wrote, and, and in that little phrase, came into the world, that's Christmas. That's Christmas. Jesus came into the world. And he came into the world out of love. Love is the story of Christmas. Love embodied Jesus' life. And for love, he lived a life where he wasn't accepted and he went to the cross. Yes, Jesus gave up his life at the cross. But the laying down of his life there at the cross, it began much earlier. It began way before that cross was raised up on that hill called Calvary. It began at the first Christmas. By the power of the Holy Spirit, a young woman named Mary conceived a child, and that child was Jesus. She was a virgin girl. Almighty God was going to become a man through her, and he did. The creator of heaven and the creator of earth and the creator of the entire universe would become one of his own creation. God would be born of a woman, and he would grow through childhood and adolescence, just like we all did. And then he'd grow into adulthood. But what was that to God? What was that all about? He did it because he loved his creation. And he put aside something. He put aside something at the start when he became a man, when he took on humanity. He put aside the glory of heaven to be born as a human infant. And again, the great writer of the New Testament, Paul, he wrote that to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, he wrote this, Jesus, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. To be born into the world, Jesus put aside something. He loved us so much. He loved his creation so much that he made himself nothing by taking on human nature. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't God. It doesn't mean that he laid aside his divinity. When we consider this passage with the entirety of Scripture, with all the rest of what's said to us in the Bible, we know and we can conclude that Jesus is God. But he had set aside something when he was born into the human race. He set aside the glory and the honor of heaven to be born of a woman. He humbled himself. The love of Jesus for us, his creation, is shown in this humbling of himself to become like us, to become a man. And it's a humbling because man is not God. As much as we think we're God, and we think that quite often, we are not God. Mankind is, is beneath God. And Jesus came down to our level. Out of love, God became a man. And that's humbling. And it's humbling because Jesus had enjoyed the prerogatives of heaven and the glory of heaven, but he lowered himself to be born of this virgin girl. That's the selfless love of Jesus that was evident even at his birth. His humiliation, his giving 
up and laying aside all the glory of heaven began at his birth. The love for all of his creation is evident in that arrival where he was put not in a cradle. No, he was put in a manger. He was put in an animal's feeding trough. That's how humbling his birth was. This was the love of our God who would come into the world to save sinners. And it was shown abundantly to us the moment he was born. That's when the, the rescue began here on earth. Salvation was imminent, imminent and, and for all of us. Like Harry Bailey, like, that, like the little boy that was depicted in the video, the entire world was underwater, figuratively, like in an icy, icy water, swamped, flooded by, by what's called sin, over our heads in sin. And we weren't getting out by our own recourse. You know, some people have tried, many have tried. They've tried to save themselves. They think that they've got it all figured out. There's a certain set of rules I'll follow. There's a list of procedures. God's going to be good with it and all is well. It's one step forward and two steps back when you're doing that. Because no one can follow all the rules or the laws or the certain regulations perfectly to make themselves acceptable to God. The way of God, the way to God was broke because of sin. And many thought, oh yeah, I can fix it. I don't need to be rescued. And that was the state of the world when Jesus arrived on the scene. We don't need you. We don't need to be saved. We're fine. We can do it. We got this rule book here that tells us what to do. The very people that should have recognized and welcomed Jesus, the religious leaders, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they rejected him. Their attitude was, we don't need to be saved. We've got this. I read an article the other day about a man who was in a lake in Massachusetts called Crystal Lake. And he was out there in the middle of a storm, flailing. Someone saw him with his arms his arms flapping around. And that's exactly the word that was used in the article, flapping around. So they called rescue. And a rescue crew arrived. They put their boat in the water. They set out to rescue the man. And when they approached him, he said, Who called you? Leave me alone. I don't need you. And here he was flailing away in the middle of a lake in the middle of a storm. And that seems the attitude of some when it comes to Jesus. I don't need to be saved. I don't need no rescue. I got this. And that's the way it was in the first century with the Pharisees who ruled the religious order. We don't need you. We got our, we got our code. But their rule following had been corrupted these rule followers that kept all the regulations, they did it often so they'd be noticed, so they'd be seen, so they'd get some honor and glory. 
and be commended by other people. Now, there were those who genuinely and sincerely made it their point to follow the rules and the regulations and the law, but they couldn't do it perfectly. Everyone slipped from time to time. It didn't work. They needed a perfect fix. And the rule following wasn't that. It wasn't the fix. Yet so many wanted to continue in their way. They, they said, forget you, Jesus. We don't need you. How could one like you? You raised some poor carpenter's family. You were born, you were born outside. We remember the story. They put you in a manger. How could you be our savior? So he was humiliated even more. It was a, a humiliation for him to put aside the blessings of heaven, but then to be raised in a poor household, to grow to become a traveling, itinerant uh, preacher who would come to be hated and despised. He was misunderstood. He was misrepresented. He was misinterpreted. And then he was spitefully abused. He was rejected. The attitude, go away. We do not need your rescue. We can save ourselves. So the idea of a, a rescue of any kind was rejected. And yet they were drowning, drowning in sin and content. Yeah, Jesus had come into the world and he had brought a simple message. Repent, repent. God loved the world so much. He sent me, his son, to receive the penalty for all sin. I love you is what Jesus was saying. Believe in me and you will be rescued from your sin. Can you believe it? Well, many didn't believe it. Instead of receiving him and believing in him, Jesus was betrayed, he was falsely accused, he was treated like a, a fugitive criminal, he was mocked, he was scourged, and then he was nailed to a cross, crucified on a criminal's cross. That's true, multitudes showered him with appreciation. They gave shouts of Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. But that quickly turned, quickly turned to a frenzied mob that cried, crucify him. Yet Jesus remained true to his life purpose. He came into the world to save sinners. And that was all motivated out of love. And he showed what manner of love he had for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. At his birth, he was humbled. And he would live on this earth humbled even more to that point of the cross. Believe it. Believe it to receive the rescue. He came into the world to give his life as your rescue. It was as if Jesus was reaching down into icy cold waters. Icy cold waters that already covered our head and been lulling us into a state of oxygen-deprived unconsciousness 
And he's saying, take my hand. I love you. I'm here to rescue you. I love you as a brother. I'm not just risking my life for you. No, I love you so much, I'm giving my life to rescue you. All our hope, all our hope is in him, the one who'd come to rescue us. Jesus, Jesus, you're my rescue. Is he your rescue? Is he your rescue? He'll never let go. Now maybe this morning you might feel like, well, he sort of slipped a little. Maybe you're experiencing something like Hannah talked about a little bit earlier, a season in your life where something's happening. You don't really understand it. It's a season we call a storm, an issue. He hasn't let go. He hasn't. But he calls us to seek him in prayer. And this morning, that's what we're here for. Second Sunday of the month, we, we always open these altars for prayer. If you have a need, whatever it might be, and especially if your head's beneath the water, if you haven't really taken hold of Jesus as your rescue, come on forward this morning. Pray with someone. Talk with one of our elders. They'll be happy. They'll be happy to pray with you, talk to you more about this one who could grab your hand and rescue you forever. Give you eternal life, Jesus. So we're going to open these altars. If our elders, if you'd make your way, we're going to have a time to just pray that prayer of faith. Anoint people with oil. As James the Apostle wrote, if there's any sick among you, let them call the elders of the church. Now pray that prayer of faith, anoint with oil, and trust God. If there's any in the back there, if you're, if you're far back and you, you can't make it all the way to the front, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. We have elders who would certainly come to you and pray with you. Let's go to our God who can rescue us regardless of the situation. Father, thank you. Thank you for your blessing. As these altars are open, Lord, I just pray. Any and all who step forward, the grace of your Holy Spirit would work through each elder, Lord. Prayers would be answered. Testimonies would be birthed. Father, we ask you to meet every single one in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, our Savior, our rescue. It's in his name we pray, amen.